following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from LifePoint Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Well, our text today is uh, Romans chapter 5, uh, verses 12 through 17. Uh, but before we get to the text, before we read the passage, uh, probably, well, I know, one of the most famous nursery rhymes of all time is the story of Humpty Dumpty, right? We all, all know this one. So Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. And uh, if you've ever dropped an egg, you can relate to the story of Humpty Dumpty, right? You drop an egg and, and it makes a big mess. The shell shatters The yolk splatters everywhere, and uh, it doesn't matter if you have all the king's horses and all the king's men, you are not putting that egg back together again. Just not going to happen. And uh, today's text, our text for today, uh, describes a terrible mistake that created an awful mess. In fact, it's the biggest mess that anyone has ever made. But it also declares incredibly that Christ can put together the pieces of this mess. And uh, so let's read uh, Romans 5, verses 12 through 17. It says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ." This passage is a a really important complement to verses 1 through 11, which we looked at the last two weeks in our series. And so we we saw in verses 1 through 11 that God has given us some wonderful assurances. We have peace with God in particular. We can be reconciled to God through Christ. That's wonderful. But but the question then is, well, how could God do that? How is it possible that, that a sinner like me could be at peace with a holy God? Well, verses 12 through 21 answer. And and you might notice, as we read through this passage, that it is a rather complicated passage, and it's not always easy to follow. This is uh, probably one of the more challenging passages uh, for us to to work through in in our series here, at least for a while. And uh, it also raises some kind of thorny theological issues that are a little bit hard to grasp, and sometimes hard to accept. 
But it's also, this passage is also filled with tremendous hope because it declares to us how Jesus can undo a, a terrible mess that sin created. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson summarizes the message of this passage as being, very simply, that there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. There is more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. And praise God for that hope. But before we get to the wonderful hope that's coming in the second part of our passage, we we need to first appreciate the mess. So, So notice in verses 12 through 14 that Adam's sin was catastrophic. Adam's sin was catastrophic. And so this passage uh, takes us back to the Garden of Eden. And, um, and it gives us some important commentary on what happened in the Garden. In fact, uh, this passage is crucial to our doctrines of man, sin, and salvation. Really, this is uh, one of the more important foundational passages in the New Testament uh, that, that shapes our theology. And it's worth emphasizing, before we get into the meat of the text, that this passage is built on the assumption that that the biblical record of Adam and Eve is a real, literal story. That Adam was a real person, that he was a direct creation of God, and that he is the father of all humanity. And I think that's just worth emphasizing because there's a lot of pressure in our day to abandon that the story of Genesis as, as literal history. And, and we might think, well, well, what's the problem with just seeing Adam as a mythological or you know, his, you know, kind of a, a figurative story? But, but really, we have to understand that, that if you abandon that, that truth, that Adam is the head of humanity, it, it has a lot of consequences downstream regarding how we understand who we are as people. What is our relationship to sin, and what is our relationship to Christ? So so it's important that we hold fast to things like that, because the consequences are are sometimes a lot bigger than we initially recognize. So so, so that said, the book of Genesis teaches that, that God created Adam and Eve physically and spiritually perfect. They couldn't get sick. They they weren't growing old, and, and they couldn't die. And also as well, when when God created them, they didn't sin. And of course, God put them in a perfect world. A perfect world that was very good and and beautiful in in every way. But of course, we we know that God gave Adam and Eve a single rule. They were not allowed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But of course, Adam and Eve committed the most consequential sin of all time when they disobeyed God's command, and they ate the forbidden fruit. And verse 12 here describes the tragic consequences that came about because of Adam's sin. So first, it tells us here that sin entered the world. You know, the moment that Adam and Eve ate that apple, or whatever it was, their their hearts changed. Suddenly, they were sinners. And suddenly they had evil desires and evil passions. And imagine what it was like for them to have their first argument. You know, like all of a sudden they're mad at each other. You know, maybe they even, you know, kind of like, that was your fault. No, that was your fault. And, and probably they had an argument shortly after all this transpires. And they're like, what, what just happened? We just argued with each other. And as a result, a second tragic consequence was that death 
also entered the world. Adam and Eve's bodies immediately began to age and began moving towards death. And even worse, the moment they sinned, they became spiritually dead and destined for hell apart from divine intervention. Now, I doubt that Adam and Eve fully appreciated in the moment the the significant consequences of what they had done. But you have to think that, that pretty quickly they realized we made a big mistake. And, and I think it's just a good reminder to us, you know, that, that so often, you know, Satan puts temptation to sin in front of our path. And, and he makes it look good, right? I mean, Satan would be the best advertiser ever. He knows how to appeal to the human heart. He knows how to to make us think that that our way is better than God's way and that we can improve on God's plan. But the story of Genesis 3 is resounding proof to us that we are always better to trust the Lord and obey and follow His way than we are to, to make up our own path or to find our way that we think is better than God's. Well, so, so sin and death entered the world, and to make matters worse, uh, Paul goes on to tell us here that their rebellion did not just have drastic consequences on their lives, but also on all their posterity. Now, Paul goes on to say in verse 12, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, now that statement at the end of verse 12 is a very important statement, a very important statement. And it's also been the subject of a lot of controversy going back to the very early years of the church. So, so for example, there was a, a man uh, named Pelagius who lived in, in the 4th and 5th century. And uh, Pelagius uh, basically denied the truth of that statement in verse 12. And he developed a doctrine which is known today as Pelagianism. And uh, here's a summary of what he believed coming from uh, one of his disciples, Coelestius. And so he sums up the idea by being that that Pelagius believed that Adam's sin injured only Adam himself and not the human race. Infants at their birth are in the same state that Adam was before his transgression. So so Pelagius taught that, that all of us are born into the world in the same state that Adam was created. And then basically from there, uh, we can choose whether we are going to serve sin and whether we're going to be wicked, or or we could also choose, according to Pelagius, to to go down a path of righteousness and not be sinners. Now, now almost all of Christianity has resoundly rejected Pelagianism. I've never met a a true Pelagianist. But, But the reality is, is that even though most of Christianity has rejected his doctrine, The secular West has absolutely embraced that idea. In fact, I mean, our our culture, secular culture in the West is built on the assumption that we are essentially good and that my problems are not fundamentally inside here. My problems are out here. My my problem is my environment. My my problem is my education. and, and, And that if we could solve those things... We could create peace and, 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 and we could solve everyone's problems and, and all would be good. And, and folks, it's hard to overstate just how different of a trajectory that creates. That, that if someone believes in the essential goodness of man, 
it's going to radically transform how they view all sorts of things compared to those of us who believe in the fundamental depravity of sinners. And, And so God is very clear here. And God is clear throughout the Bible that, that that is not so, that instead we are all depraved. And theologians call this depravity that we inherit from Adam original sin. And Wayne Grudem gives us just a helpful, simple definition of what we mean by original sin when he says that original sin is the guilt and tendency to sin that all people inherit because of Adam's sin. So so we're not born a blank slate. Our text teaches that that we all inherited both Adam's sinful nature and as well, we inherited his guilt, his his condemnation before God. So, So we are born to this world, not friends of God, but we are born hostile to God. And we are born hostile to his lordship over us. And if you doubt that, go sit in the two-year-old nursery for a little bit. It was every toddler is, is screaming evidence of the depravity of sinners. Because you don't have to teach them. You don't have to teach a two-year-old how to be selfish. You don't have to teach them how to hit to, to get what they want. You don't have to teach them how to lose their temper. It comes very naturally because all of us are born depraved. We're sinners. Now, now I must note that that even among Orthodox Christians, there's a big divide about about what Paul means by by that last phrase, because all sinned. And so so how is it exactly, though? Yeah, We all all agree that that we inherit Adam's depravity, but how does that depravity come to us? And so so the first guy to really push back on Pelagius was, was Augustine. And Augustine was a contemporary of his, and, and so he came up with, with a theory about how it is that we inherit depravity by what he called, um, well, well I, don't know, I don't know that he used this name, but, but it's called today realism or seminal headship. And so specifically, he taught that, that since we all descended from Adam, we were all in Adam when Adam sinned. And so basically, when, when he made his choice to sin, Augustine believed that we all made the choice with him because we were all in Adam, like literally in his loins, so to speak, is how he would have said it, when Adam made his choice. And he got that idea uh, from verse 12, which says, because all sinned. He he took that to mean that we literally sinned. We, We really sinned in Adam. But the problem with that is that the rest of the passage really doesn't support that view. And in particular, uh, the, 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 the parallelism between the first Adam and the second Adam, Christ, is, is really crucial to the argument of this passage. And, and, and no one is going to claim that we were in the loins of Jesus when he died on the cross. And that somehow we made the choice to, to go to the cross with Jesus and that we somehow cleansed ourselves in the cross. So, so that... That, that, that parallelism is a big problem. As well, I think we can all recognize that it's just simply nonsensical to, to think that, that we somehow willfully participated in Adam's sin. I mean, sure, the genetic potential for all humanity was in Adam when, when he sinned. 
But that's very different. Genetic potential is obviously a very different thing than willful participation. So, so the superior view is what is commonly called federal or representative headship. And according to this view, when Adam disobeyed, he, he made his choice as a representative for all of us. So it's sort of like at the beginning of a football game, there's a coin toss. And the whole team does not vote on, on who, you know, they don't vote on it's going to, or we're going to call heads or tails. No, you just send a captain out, and the, and the official says, you know, say heads or tails, and when he flips the coin, he says heads or tails. And, and, and then the whole team, even though the whole team does not make the choice, the whole team has to live with the consequences of the captain's choice when, when he calls heads or tails. And, and similarly, when Adam made his choice to sin, the idea is that he made his choice on behalf of all of his descendants. And as a result, the effects of his sin are reckoned or credited or imputed to all of his descendants. Uh, just as verses 15 through 19 are going to say that when we believe on Christ, that the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection are credited to those who are in him. And, and most people take this view uh, because uh, it, it fits very well the, the, the parallelism that is so crucial to this passage. So, so we are, are imputed with Adam's guilt, but through faith, we can be imputed with Christ's righteousness. We're all born under Adam's headship, with, with him as our head and credited with his, his guilt, his sin, but through faith, we can go to being under the headship of Christ. And we can be credited with, with his righteousness and perfection. And, and so, as well, it's just worth noting that we might look at verse 12 and say, yeah, but verse 12 really sounds like it's saying that we literally sinned in Adam. And I think it's worth just noting that, that the conjunction that's translated there, because, in the Greek, that, that that word can mean various things depending on the context. It's not a word that always means because like we think of it. So I think probably the better way to understand it would be that it's not indicating cause, it's instead communicating result. So the idea then in verse 12 would be that sin spread to all men with the result that all sin. I think that's the better way to understand it. Now, now you might struggle with, with how any of that is fair. That's a good question. I mean, how is it fair that this guy, Adam, you know, my, my great, 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 you know, to infinity grandfather, whatever he is, I mean, how is it that he gets to make this choice and, and all of humanity, the whole world, has to live with the consequences of his choice? And, and that's a hard one. And, and that's why most liberals, uh, most people who, who don't hold faithfully to the Scriptures would, would deny that, that this is so. They don't want to believe in original sin. But we have to remember, folks, that God doesn't impute depravity to us. God is not the source of my depravity. You know, and, and so Adam disobeyed, not God. Now, of course, God is sovereign over it all, but, but, but Adam brought sin into the world. God did not bring sin into the world. And, and I inherited my guilt from Adam, not from God. 
So, so don't get mad at God about all that is broken and, 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 and horrible about the world we live in. You know, because because, because the, the brokenness of our world is not God's fault. It's Adam's fault. And so get mad at sin, all right? When, when you are suffering, when you're frustrated with, with the curse and with all that sin has brought about because it is rooted in sin, not in God. So, so as well, then, verses 13 and 14 go on to tell us, uh, but, but to note that regardless of how we might feel about all of this, the reality is, is that the evidence for, for depravity is overwhelming. So verses 13 and 14 again say, For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So, so what these verses do, they, they, they make their point by, by looking back on the period from, from Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, until God gave the law, beginning around Exodus 19. And, 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 and look at those, those people, and of course, that, those people, they had no Bible, right? There's no scriptures written yet at this point in time. The people that lived before Moses, they had very little divine revelation. And, and so we might wonder, well, well, if they didn't have any commands from God, any written commands from God, then how could they sin? You know, I mean, I, you know that, that comes up in our house, right? Like, well, I didn't know. Yeah, but you were being a moron, you know? So, so, so we can think, well, if there's no command, then there's no guilt. So, so were these people not guilty before God, and, and were they indeed depraved? And, and Paul just simply answers in, in Romans 5, verses 13 and 14, that we know they were sinners, and we know they were depraved, because they all died. And the fact that they all died is, is clear evidence to us that they were guilty before God. And death reigned from Adam until Moses. So, so Paul's point here is that the presence of death, even over those who did not break a specific command of God, it is, proves the fact that, that we all live with the consequences of Adam's sin. And, and so... We all understand, and of course we all understand that those consequences, I mean, they are truly catastrophic. You know, we, I mean, we, we can't undersell this, right? We, we live every day of our lives with the pain, the sorrow, the violence, the hostility that Adam brought on the world. And of course, let's never forget that the worst consequence of Adam's sin is nothing that happens in this world. The worst consequence... Is, is condemnation in hell. So, so maybe there's someone here and you're still holding on to the conviction that, that, that you are a good person and there is no way that you need to be saved because how could God ever condemn someone like me? And, and God is very clear that, that you don't have to do anything to be condemned. You know, it's not like you know, we're, we're born to this world, good with God, and then we got to do something really horrible to end up in hell. You don't have to do anything to end up in hell. And so all you, but you do have to do something to be saved. We, we have to trust in Christ. So, so we all need salvation. We all need grace. 
So, so Adam made a catastrophic mess. The world is broken, and so am I, and so are you. And, and God is clear here in another place is that there is nothing that you or I can do to fix the mess. We cannot put the pieces back together again. Now again, our, our culture likes to believe that, that we can. You know, that if we just create the right environment and, and, and have the right education in place, that, that we can create peace locally and globally and everything will be good. Our problems are all environmental. But that is not so. You know, there is nothing that sinners can do to fix our own mess. And if there were nothing but the first Adam, if there was nothing but the first Adam, we would all have no hope of a future beyond anything but sin, destruction, violence, and death. But praise the Lord that the passage doesn't end in verse 14, right? That that the Lord provided us with a second Adam, so to speak. And so verses 15 through 17 tell us that Christ overwhelmed the catastrophe that Adam created. And and they make this point by, by contrasting Adam's disobedience and the consequences that Adam's disobedience brought with Christ's obedience on the cross and its wonderful blessing. And so the first contrast is in verse 15, which makes the point that Christ's obedience is greater than Adam's disobedience. So again, verse 15 says, but the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, speaking there of Adam, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Now, this verse, again, just emphasizes the fact that Adam made a terrible mess. And his transgression brought death and destruction to all of his descendants. And remember that that death is not only physical, it is also spiritual. We are born to this world separated from God, condemned to hell. So, So Adam created a terrible mess. And I don't know about you, but I think all of us have probably broken an egg at some point in your life. And I doubt when you broke that egg, you sat there and pondered, I wonder if I can put this egg back together. Right? I mean, that thought never even crosses your mind. Because there's no way you're going to take all these pieces, these pieces of shell and this yolk that's splattered across your, your countertop and think that you are going to put it back together. I mean, it doesn't take any skill at all to break an egg. Any little kid can break an egg. But it takes next-level talent to put an egg together again. And on an infinitely greater scale, verse 15 makes the point that Jesus fixed Adam's catastrophe. And specifically, Jesus brought the grace of God into the world. And the Bible, of course, teaches that that he brought this grace into the world through his perfect life, his his active obedience, and his passive obedience in death, and and through his resurrection from the dead. You know, folks, never before and never since has anyone displayed such kind, loving, but ultimately powerful grace as what Jesus did in, in his perfect life and in his powerful death and resurrection. But of course, Jesus didn't just show off his grace. He also offers, according to verse 15, the gift 
by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. And this incredible grace is available to us as a gift simply by faith. So so Jesus provided the means for us to escape the mess that Adam made. The sin, the death, the judgment that he brought into the world. And Christ can fix the catastrophe. Now, now sometimes, you know, we fix breakable items. Have you ever broke a vase or dropped a coffee cup and, you know, and you decide you're going you're gonna to put the pieces back together? And, and, and I, you know, I don't have a single artistic gene in my body. So, so I am terrible at that sort of thing. But, but maybe you can, you know, take a broken vase and, and you've got the skill, the talent to where you can glue it back together and you can make it look pretty good. You know, but the reality is, is that no matter what you do, you cannot restore it to its original condition. You, you can't truly fix that vase. But verse 15 emphasizes the fact that Jesus didn't just bumble, bubble gum and bailing wire sinners together. No, he provided abounding grace which is far greater than Adam's sin and its consequences. And that really is the main point of verse 15. It's why the verse begins by saying that Christ's work is not like the transgression. There are similarities, but fundamentally the work of Christ is different. And the point there is because it is infinitely more powerful. So Jesus overwhelmed the devastating consequences of Adam's sin. And that's significant because, you know, sometimes we talk about the fact that when Christ came into the world, he came to undo the effects of the fall. You know, that, that, that Christ came to restore the world to its pre-fall condition. And, and that is certainly true. And in fact, many of our Christmas songs talk about that. So, you know, Joy to the World, one of the verses of Joy to the World says, No more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And that's a fascinating line that that he's saying there that that everywhere that the curse has gone, every, every crack and corner and crevice of creation where the curse has gone out, it's saying there that Christ came to go and undo every effect of the curse far as the curse is found Christ is going to fix it all. But, but, but notice there, so, so it's telling us that, that Christ didn't merely come to give us eternal life. He, he also came to, to reconcile sinners, not just to God, but to reconcile sinners to each other. He, he came to bring peace on earth, as the angel said to the shepherds. And he also came to, to fix every place that the curse reached the earth. But verse 15 notes that Christ is going to actually do a whole lot more than just restore the creation to what it was before Adam fell. And when you look at Revelation and what Revelation has to say about the new heavens and the new earth, that they're not just the equivalent of the Garden of Eden. They're clearly better than the Garden of Eden. And it's not just that God is going to, to restore the earth to something better than it was before. I'm going to be better than Adam was before the curse. You know, because it's not just that I won't sin, I will not have the capacity to sin. And, and think about the fact that, that when we see God in His glory, 
with all the history of the story of redemption. You know, we, 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 we can look back and, and we understand what, what sin is. What, what the curse is and, and the destruction that sin brings. And we can look back on the cross of Christ and His resurrection and all that God has done in the world. When I stand before God someday, I, my ability to know the glory of God and to worship God will be far greater than what Adam had before the curse. Because of my depth of knowledge, my understanding through all that God has done. So folks, God's plan is truly incredible. And we should all rejoice today that the grace of God is infinitely more powerful than the curse of sin. Now again, there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. And then the second contrast in verses 16 and 17 is that Christ's work brings better consequences. And Paul uh, makes this point by contrasting two consequences of Adam's sin with two consequences of Christ's death. So, so first of all, we can receive justification instead of condemnation. So verse 16 says, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. So, so Paul begins here again by stating that Adam brought condemnation on all his descendants. You know, if you're not yet convinced that, that Paul was not a Pelagian, it ought to be clear. Paul believed that we are all condemned through Adam's sin. And he believed that Adam's one transgression, he says here, brought condemnation to all his posterity. But, but once again, as consequential as Adam's sin was, Paul declares that the work of Christ is even better. And specifically, when Jesus was born, he, he didn't merely need to resolve just one transgression, right? You know, Jesus did not, when, when Jesus came to the earth, he didn't need to just fix Adam's sin, right? Because Adam's sin turned into a whole lot of sins. I mean, that one you know, little mess that Adam made turned into a huge mess. And you're part of it. And I'm part of it too. And so, so, so by the time Christ comes, and of course Christ is, is coming to atone for sins from, from the time of Adam all the way until uh, till the end of time. And so when Christ did that, he had a huge mess to clean up. And yet Jesus provided an infinitely valuable atonement on the cross. And through his death, he offers a free gift that can answer every sin and provide justification. I mean, think about the fact that he is able to take broken, dirty sinners like us and through what he did on the cross, he can declare us not guilty. No sin, no spot. We can be justified. And I hope that, 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 that none of us will ever so, grow so familiar with the truth of the gospel. Now, we've talked a lot in this series about justification by faith. I hope we never grow so familiar with those sorts of truths that we lose sight of how amazing it is. You know, we're going to sing uh, in a little bit here about the fact that our sins 
they are many. You are a mess. You're a catastrophe. And so am I. So, so we, make, we have made a terrible mess. But Jesus' blood is sufficient to cover it all. And God's mercy is more. So, so maybe as a Christian, you came into church today burdened with guilt and, and discouraged about your spiritual progress. Yeah, you know, maybe you're just, man, I am not growing like I should. And I'm not making the progress I should. I failed God miserably this week. What will be encouraged that no matter how great of a mess you have made, God's mercy is more. And there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. So, so run to Christ. Confess your sin to Him. Cry out for strength to change. And then keep going. Because God's mercy is stronger. And if you have never received Christ as your Savior, just believe on Him today. It doesn't matter what you have done. It doesn't matter how, how much you have sinned against the Lord. I mean, this passage says that the grace of God is greater than any sin you can commit. I mean, there is more grace in Christ then there is sin in you. So, 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 so yes, you are a mess. And I'm a mess. But you can run to Christ and know that, that, that He can forgive it all and, and He can fix it all. So come to Christ. And then the second consequence of Christ's death is that we can enjoy life instead of death. So verse 17 says, For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Now notice here in this verse that death and eternal life are, are not just consequences for later. So, so we tend to think of death you know, purely in terms of like the moment I die and eternal life is something that I get in heaven. But, but that's not how he's thinking of it here. No, Paul says that death is a power that dominates the life of every unbeliever. And chapter 6 will say that sin is also a power that reigns over the unbeliever. So, so sin is not just something that I do. Chapter 6 is going to say that sin is a power that, that, that enslaves the unbeliever. And so he lives for himself. He is blinded to the truth of God. And he is marching towards hell. But, but thankfully, spiritual life is also not just an inheritance that I receive after death. No, instead, the moment I trust in Christ, I have eternal life. And life reigns in me. And so the Holy Spirit comes to live inside us. The moment we are converted, we have joy and peace with God. And we, can, we can serve Him. We can, we can trust in Him. We, we understand His glory and His love. And we can live for what really matters. And incredibly, we who are once under the reign of death, Paul says, will one day reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. That's incredible because you know, what he's saying there and what other passages tell us, that, that someday I'm not just going to be a citizen in the kingdom. I'm actually going to rule and reign under Christ. 
Now, I think of, I think of Joseph, for example. You know that Joseph, I mean, one day he's in an Egyptian prison. I mean, he is, he is in a disgusting, cruel prison in Egypt. He's dirty. He's unkept. He's foul. I mean, I bet he smelled and looked terrible. And then the next day, he, 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 he interprets Pharaoh's dream. He's cleaned up. And he is ruling underneath Pharaoh in glory and power. And similarly, it's amazing what Christ provided. Because, because we are broken, catastrophic sinners. And through Christ, we can reign in life. We can serve and glorify God under Him. But, but I do want to emphasize that, that everyone does not possess that grace. You know, someone, I think this is important. It is important. You know, someone might read through this passage and interpret the universal language that Paul uses to mean, well, well, well Adam's sin was imputed to all people, so all people are condemned, and Christ is going to fix it for everyone so that everyone is going to heaven. And of course, the Bible is very clear that that is not the case. The Bible is clear that we have to believe on Christ to be saved. The Bible is also clear that more people will end up in hell than end up in heaven. But Paul also makes that point explicit right here in verse 17. Because who has the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness? It says those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. We have to receive it. And so the Bible is very clear here. That, that not everyone is saved, only those who receive it. And of course, that takes a lot of humility. Because to, to receive this gift, you have to admit that you need it. That you can't save yourself. And there's nothing you can do to, to merit eternal life. You can't pay for the gift. You can't barter something with God. It takes a lot of humility to just receive the gift of eternal life from Christ. And of course, as well, it takes faith that Christ is able to save. So if you have never received Christ as your Savior, I hope that today you will understand that you have no hope to save yourself. You know, God didn't just devise a plan where you know, if you follow these you know, 10 steps, you fix yourself at the end and you get to go to heaven. No, He had to send a second Adam to start over and to provide salvation that we could never provide for ourselves to clean up the catastrophe that we could never clean up. And, and you can only be saved by trusting in Him. So, so you agree with God that I am a mess and that I can't solve it myself. And then you trust in what Jesus did as alone sufficient to save. And, and so if anyone here has not done that, I hope that today you will believe on Christ and be saved. If you have questions, we'd, we'd love to talk with you afterwards and, and help you know how it is that you can be born again. So in conclusion, this passage begins with the darkest news imaginable. Adam created a catastrophe. But it ends with the best news possible, that Christ overwhelmed the catastrophe. And, and folks, that's great news, not just for people who need to be saved, but for those of us who are saved. You know, that, that, that we are all still a mess. Now, hopefully we're less of a mess than we used to be, but we are all still a mess. But don't get discouraged. 
Because there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. And so God can forgive every sin. He can help you overcome every struggle. He can sustain you through every hardship. And someday you will reign in life with Christ and all the the challenges and difficulties of this world, they're going to fade into oblivion. So, So remember what Christ did. Stay encouraged. Keep fighting. Tell others about the hope that they can enjoy if they receive Christ. This is a great time of year to to, to just take the the truth of a passage like this and and to encourage people about why Jesus came and what he offers. And then keep a clear vision of the future grace that is sure to come. Someday I will reign in life with Jesus. Let's have everyone bow your head and close your eyes. Before we... uh, we, we sing and close out the service. I just want to ask if there's anyone here who, who needs to, who, who'd like me to pray for you and, and reach out to you about how to be saved. Is there anyone like that at all that you have questions about your soul and, and you'd like someone to speak with you later on? Like me to pray for you? All right. Lord, thank you for this wonderful passage and thank you for the hope of the gospel. And thank you, God, that there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in us. And so, God, I pray that all of us would leave knowing the hope of Christ. And, Lord, I pray that we would live every day in the strength of the grace that Jesus provided. And so thank you, God, for sending Christ into the world. Thank you for your marvelous plan. Help us to rejoice in it. Help us to walk in the strength that you provide. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.